Welcome to the EMT Pro Podcast, where we deliver relevant EMS content from the field and the classroom each week. As a reminder, each episode of this podcast can get you one full hour of continuing education through our partner emt-ce.com, so head over there for more information. I'm your host, Steve Williams, and with me is Dan and Holly. Guys, glad to have you. Steve, so glad to be here today. <laughs> Thanks for having us back. Absolutely. Absolutely. Shocking. You guys are basically the co-hosts, so I don't know why I keep introducing you as I don't know why you such. keep having us back. <laughs> <laughs> I don't either. <laughs> um, well, today uh, we're going to talk about a rather kind of somber topic, and that is uh, PTSD or more commonly referred to now as PTSI. Which I thought was the other way around. Yeah, it's PTSI is the new term. And PTSD was what was originally uh, uncovered or diagnosed in the 1980s. So for an old guy, if yeah. you could just give me the difference. Yeah, yeah. Um, the difference, so PTSD originally diagnosed in 1980, and then over the years, people have tried to change the name to reduce the stigma, and they've also tried to rename it in ways that uh, touch on the physiological changes that occur in people who've sustained uh, the physiological effects of PTSD for, you know, quite a while. And so PTSI is kind of the new term that uh, is being floated around and accepted. Oh, interesting. And yeah. What does it stand for? Post-traumatic stress injury instead of post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah. Learn something new every day. Gosh, I'll say. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, I will. Now you know. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> All right, that's good. We'll see you later. Yeah, uh, I, I think that's it. So we're going to call it a day. <laughs> Which but, is how we do this in EMS, right? Oh, exactly. Like we're true. really horrible at mental health in EMS. Exactly. So we like, just... Oh, I went on this awesome call and it was amazing. And I'm going to talk about it for the next 20 years, but I'm just going to keep packing it away in the closet. Right, right. And not dealing with it. Right. Exactly. Well, I think I'm going to start into... Uh, a story that I have that kind of walks you through my journey with PTSI. And then uh, you guys feel free to ask any clarifying questions. This is not meant to be Steve's story time and, uh, you know, just chip in where you can. And uh, if there's anything that needs clarification, definitely let me know. Okay. Um, let me pull up my notes here because I want to make sure I get some of the details right. So um, my journey, if you want to call that, uh, or my uh, first introduction to uh, dealing with PTSI started a couple years back. Uh, I had a uh, really gnarly call. Um, I had uh, basically been dispatched to a motor vehicle accident, uh, and we had a crew of three on an ambulance going to the call. I was on uh, I was on the ambulance, and we were going to a rural part of our town, our district, so we were uh, responding with numerous QRTs and like every police officer that you could uh, imagine was headed this way. So uh, about four or five minutes into the call, we're, you know, headed that direction. Dispatch updates us and says, hey, you've got uh, three patients, one's pinned, uh, and police are doing CPR on a child. And so pretty crappy update. And uh, so we start getting some more resources headed our way, but the only problem was we were resource limited because the city was busy. Um, our entire district was uh, pretty bogged down with calls. So I got one other medic unit headed my way, uh, but they're at the very uh, far end of our town where our hospital is located. So they're, they're even further away than they normally would be. 
So they're about, I would say, 15 or 20 minutes behind us. Right before we got there, we had formulated a pretty good plan of what we were going to do on our arrival, right? So most car wrecks, we're going to do an inner and an outer circle. We're going to, you know, have a crude, uh, one or two people focused on the patient or patients. And then someone is going to be getting a lay of the land, you know, around the scene, right? So we don't miss someone who got launched from the car, right? Uh, and it's in the field, right? And we didn't find them, right? So we wanted to make sure we had everything planned out and we all knew our roles. So we're showing up to this thing. And I think it was Mike Tyson who said, uh, everybody has a plan going into the ring and then they get punched in the face. <laughs> right. <laughs> we, got, we got punched in the face and, uh, we got on scene and, uh, the, the first thing I am hit with is a police officer charging at me full speed with a lifeless child in his hands. And so that really was like, uh oh, okay. Didn't even really have a chance to step out of the rig yet. And we're getting hit with this, uh, you know, pretty, intense, uh, visual, put the kiddo in the back of our ambulance. Uh, my two partners start working on her and then I start doing my walk around to see if I'm missing anything. We got two other patients, an adult and another child, uh, adults doing pretty okay. Child is, uh, pretty, pretty banged up, not doing so hot, but she's conscious. So get back into the rig and they're doing CPR and we had to have this really crappy conversation of, hey, guys, uh, trauma dead is dead. We're not going to be able to revive this one. Um, she had some pretty gnarly injuries. And we had to move on and get the uh, older child out and back, you know, in the back of our rig so we could transport. Uh, the adult was doing fine. We were able to, she was already packaged. Uh, so we were able to send uh, the mom with that incoming unit right when they got there. So we got them turned around real quick, and then they took off. I didn't really set up the scene very well, but um, car wreck is a uh, SUV down into a ditch kind of area. Um, vehicle went off the roadway at about 60 miles an hour. Uh, intoxicants are on board. Um, driver is doing pretty okay. Uh, kids were not buckled. Uh, they were playing in the back seats, oh. uh, and they got launched. So, uh, mom gets, uh, transported and the child, uh, that we had basically called was we had to go set up a casualty collection point, which sucks. So we had to move her to a, uh, spot that was going to be managed by the IC on the scene and we got, um, uh, we got her kind of taken care of and then turned all of our attention to the, the older child. So we get, um, we get the oldest in the back of our ambulance. We start hauling towards the hospital and, you know, take her right into the OR. She ends up making it, but has some pretty significant internal injuries that, uh, you know, lacerated spleen, ruptured bowel, uh, broken pelvis, um, wow. Yeah, just, those are significant. Yeah, just just a massive list of stuff that uh thank you know, thank God she she made it. So I get out to my ambulance bay and uh clean it up and it just like rush of emotion, like just just hits me. Like I, I knew it was it was coming, like I could tell, but uh it kinda all unleashed at once and so I'm cleaning up, trying to hide, bawling my eyes out. Right. And uh my battalion chief 
had actually gotten a phone call from the lieutenant on the other medic unit who said, hey, we just picked up a patient. Steve's running a scene right now. I've never seen him look this way. I think he's 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 going to have to go home. Like this one's going to, you wow, know. That's, yeah. That's totally crazy. amazing that he had that that forethought. But he uh he told me afterwards he said you looked hollow on scene, which is an amazing word to use because I've never been described as having a hollow look, but he said I you just looked like you were, you know, completely drained of you know, all your energy and empathy and everything. It just looked like not you. So really good heads up on his part, right, to do that. And so my battalion chief shows up, sees me bawling my eyes out, uh, puts some stuff in place to get me sent home. Um, but uh, long story short, with that piece, I've got awesome people that I work with. They pay attention to that stuff. And we're starting to turn the tide uh, with our department on breaking the stigmas with mental health, but also taking care of one another because we are realizing we see lots of nasty stuff, right? And you're not supposed to see this stuff, but that's the line of work we're in, right? So I got um, I got back to the station, did my chart, ended up going home. Um, and then the next day, my wife says, hey, why don't we just take a walk and take the kids out and go for a walk? And that's, looking back, that's when my symptoms really first started. Uh, I'm on this walk. I've got my wife and my two kids in front of me. And it was this overwhelming sense of guilt that I had that was like a 100-pound weight on my shoulders that the dad and the father who came to the hospital, he's never going to have this view ever again. And so there was just this immense guilt that uh, I was feeling. And, it, you know, a lot of this doesn't make sense, but it's what your body feels. And so you're, you kind of start feeling these symptoms and you have to be able to put them together, um, or at least recognize that, that, yeah, I might be feeling some stuff and I might be, might need to talk to somebody, right? Not me. No, I was good. You know, I was going to figure this out, right? So, uh, I get to, uh, this next week, I start having these amazing, which I hope no one ever has to deal with crying spells, which are like debilitating. They're like 20 or 30 minutes long. I have to like hide myself for that period of time in the day, wherever it happens. Cause there's no like, uh, what would be the word? There's no heads up that they're coming. I can't really tell that they're, you know, about to hit. I go through these things for about two or three times a day for a week. And the end of the week comes and I'm like, eh, you know, this, these will probably be good. These will probably lessen up for sure. And they didn't. So a week turned into a month. Month turns into about six weeks. And I hit my max uh, at the grocery store of all places. I'm in line at the produce section. Got a couple people next to me on each side. And I'm looking at zucchini. I remember this like just clear as day. And one of these crying spells just hits me while I'm in the produce aisle. And I'm holding, I'm holding a squash in one hand and a zucchini in the other because I can never remember which one I actually need when I'm, <laughs> you know, in these moments trying to make stir fry. And I'm, I'm holding both these vegetables and I start bawling. And this guy next to me looks over and is just like, Oh, buddy, what is going on? You know, just kind of like, are you doing all right? And, uh, I'm trying to like, you know, oh yeah, I'm fine. Just going through some stuff and, 
he's probably thinking, man, this guy really, really loves his vegetables and he's really <laughs> passionate about organic produce. But, uh, I decided I had to go talk to someone. Um, I let the guard down. I let the ego, you know, walk away and I had to go talk to someone because I will say this. I was never suicidal in all of this. Um, I've talked to many people who become suicidal with the symptoms they experience. But for me, the intrusion of these symptoms were so annoying. I just needed to do something to, you know, make them go away. And so, um, that's when my journey of finding the right counselor started because I didn't realize that was going to happen. Um, I go meet with the first guy and, uh, I sit down and, you know, we do the introductions and then we start talking about why I'm there and I get through this story and the second or third thing out of his mouth is, uh, yeah. And you know, I want to make sure that we're talking to you about career options because, you know, we probably need to think about a new career for you if this is something that's bothering you so much. And after he got done explaining his point, I said, Hey, I really appreciate your time, but, um, I'm not here to talk about finding a new career or even letting that be an option. And he starts backtracking a little bit and I said, no, I, I really appreciate your time. And I, I got up and walked out because I wasn't going to sit there and entertain the thought of leaving the job that I had spent so much time, you know, working to get and then promoting in that job. You know, like if I'm going to leave, it's going to be on my terms, not because, right. you know, I'm, I'm wrecked. Right. And also if you have this calling to do what you do, mm-hmm. of course you're going to have hard times. You can't Absolutely. just give up on it. Absolutely. And so I go find the next person and this one was probably the funniest, I guess, if you want to describe it that way. I'm sitting there telling this new guy what, uh, what happened and he starts getting emotional and he's like, Oh geez. Like, you know, his eyes are, you know, right. getting teary and I'm telling him what, what happened. And he, he looks at me and he's like, I'm just so sorry you, you went through this and I'm having to coach him through the rest of my story, right? <laughs> the chair switched, you know, right. like all of a sudden uh, he's on the couch. I'm in the chair <laughs> and it's like, dude, what? This isn't the way it's supposed to be, but we'll get through this buddy. You know, like, you know, we'll split the, uh, the deductible on this one. And we'll call it good. So I ended up finding a guy who is a former, uh, captain at a fire department. So similar job that I had, but he retired and then started his own counseling practice. Uh, went back to school and became a counselor and is only seeing police and fire. Um, he doesn't take any other patients. And he was vital in my recovery. Uh, his ability to ask me the tough questions that made me look outside of myself because uh, he realized the job that I have has a lot of responsibilities, right? As a lieutenant, you're in charge of a crew and you have people that are assigned to you. And so you have more than yourself to worry about. Um, and he wanted to make sure that that was on my radar. And I really, really appreciated that because it gave me a sense of uh, ownership, if that's the right word, in my recovery, because I wanted to get better, not just for me, but I wanted to get better for those uh, guys and gals that are assigned to me on my crew so that they could see, okay, recovery is possible. We can get through this. Crappy calls are going to happen. But I had the model of how to get better shown to me and this guy's now a really good sort uh my lieutenant's now a really good resource for me um maybe not to you know do all the counseling and treatment with because that's not my forte but he's a good resource for you know someone to talk to 
and if he he went there, he he had the guy that uh, helped counsel him through everything. He's a good recommendation for who I should go see. It took about eighteen months. I will be honest. It took a while to to finally get a true resolution of symptoms. The crying spells were like six months off and on, but they definitely got less and less frequent. Um, but the nightmares, um, I kept having this nightmare where I was trying to tell the adult not to leave intoxicated from where she was at with the kids. And I couldn't, I couldn't change her mind and it kept happening. And then I kept getting sent back to that scene, uh, oh, with, with the man. nightmares. And so those started to go away, but it took, uh, it took a, a lot of treatment. And one of the things that I think is vital in, uh, PTSI treatment, uh, that I got, undergo was uh, something called EMDR. I don't know if you guys have heard that, which stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And I'm going to get all the details on it wrong um, if I try to go in too, too in depth on it. But the way that it was described to me that I remembered, uh, which was so beneficial was when we go through trauma, whether it's personally, professionally, whatever, it creates this rat's nest of connections in our brain. And it's really hard to store a rat's nest, right? Um, and the reason it's, you know, so difficult to work through trauma and grief and things like that are because there's this rat's nest of stuff that hasn't been stored properly inside right. our brains. EMDR and counseling and a lot of other things help unpack that, that ball of whatever into a much more organized storage system so that not that we forget it. Um, that's not the goal so that we can live with the memory of it is kind of the, the way that it was uh, relayed to me. And so, yeah, that was, that was my story, but it was, it's been really cool getting over it because now I get a lot of people who come to me and say, Hey, dude, I'm struggling with this. I've, I've got this problem going on in my life. I don't know what to do. Um, can you help me? Do you have any resources? Do you have any recommendations? Um, but it's cool being that person that people come ask. So questions. do you guys have a team or some kind of peer support group at your department? It's early, but yeah, we have a peer support team. Um, we're in the process of getting more people on it and more people trained up to do it. Um, but I'm actually one of those three peer support guys and we're being utilized. Um, and it's know. great because you just talking about your experience mm -hmm. and being willing to talk about that has made it so it's okay. Right. People come to you now and... That's probably one of the biggest hurdles in our career is actually talking about it. Absolutely. And that's, that's be the old guy. That's what's super difficult for me. I mm -hmm. still don't do it. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I remember just a couple, three years ago, we had this kid that hung himself in the garage. Mm -hmm. You know, to me, it was just another cool call because that's how I grew up. It's just those are the type of calls I like to go on and. Not knowing that it just keeps damaging the inside of me. And so we get back to the station. We have the station that's got 10 people in it. And they call us into the kitchen. And I thought we were going to play a game of cards. Who's going to buy blizzards that day? <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> so I come waddling there. There's people in there. There's some people crying and such. I go, what the fuck is going on in here? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I sit down and then this, this person who works for us, who's on the peer support team is there. And I said, well, what are they doing here? Are they get a call shift or what's going on? Yeah. And they start talking about this call and it's like, I, all of a sudden, everything inside me just starts clamming up. Mm -hmm. Like, nope, I, don't, I don't tell my wife what goes on at work. What am I going to tell you what goes on at work? Right. And so I it got to me, it's like, no, I'm good. Yeah. I'm good. And I am not good. I am still not good. Yeah. I, 
I, you guys, you know what a cutter is, right? Someone who cuts themselves yes. Yes. to have feeling. I feel like I'm an emotional cutter where, no, I'll go in and make sure this guy who blew his head off is okay. Cause mm-hmm. I don't mind seeing that, right? Mm-hmm. At least I don't think I do. Yeah. Because I don't know why did I get into this job? I don't know what the reason is, but yeah. I'll go in. It doesn't bother me one bit on the outside, but I know right. on the inside it's killing me. Right. You talk to my family. If someone breaks an arm or something, they will look at me and they will walk right past me and go to my wife because they know I don't give a right? Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> and that's it's so true. I am. My sister told me the other day, she says, you have lost it all. Like what, what is going on with you? Cause we were talking about something. I was talking about this really cool call and, and to her, her husband was a firefighter oh, as well. Yeah. So she knows what goes on and like, what are you doing, dude? Yeah. You, there are two types of people in this world, people who go to therapy and people who need to go to therapy. Right. So, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I don't go to therapy. <laughs> I need to go to therapy. Yeah, but then you do. it's like my Camry. I have this Camry, like, I will not go to the transmission shop to have the oil changed in yeah, the transmission. Yeah, I need some work, man. I've heard <laughs> because it. Because if I do. My neighbors have heard it. Oh, you stop. <laughs> if I start f***ing with that transmission, yeah. what's going to happen? It runs fine now, and that's how I feel like I am. My transmission is running fine until it stops. Yeah. You're like the guy who's smoking and says, I, I, can, I can. I got this. Nothing's happened to me yet. <laughs> yeah, I'll I'll be fine. fine. Yeah. One thing that's interesting about. Um, our careers is we see all these bad calls and we're so good at compartmentalizing yes. or we wouldn't have, yes. you know, we've all got probably 20 years and mm-hmm. we wouldn't be here right now if we couldn't compartmentalize. Um, but as that, like all of those things just fill up the cup and eventually mm-hmm. it's going to run over it spills. and it doesn't have to be a traumatic event that causes it to spill over. It could be something happy, yeah. any kind of emotional reaction. Disney movies. Disney movies or yeah. somebody graduates from college right. and you're yes. super happy. And then that's what might tip you over into these PTSI mm-hmm. um, symptoms. Yeah. And it's hard because you don't know. You don't know where to start unpacking. Or right? what? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I, the Disney movies was so key. I, I've, I've had multiple people that I work with start bawling their eyes out at Disney movies. And I'm like, what is going on, you guys? And they're like, oh, this just... These things just do such a good job of touching on every emotion. It's like, <laughs> dang, you know, like, oh, I'm so glad that luckily I don't have that symptom because I've got a seven and a half and a three and a half year old at home and it's Disney movies all day long. <laughs> and I would be just a ball of emotion. Wouldn't be able to walk through my living room. Oh, one thing you were talking about with the EMDR mm-hmm. is, um, I was one of our good friends, Brenda. Hopefully she'll be on this podcast someday. Yeah was explaining that um, when you have this traumatic event, your emotional part of your brain shuts off. So all you have are your senses. Mm-hmm. You know, you're in that fight or flight, what you see or hear or smell, touch. Um, those things are really heightened. Mm-hmm. And then after the event, when you start having emotional reaction to it, it has nothing to connect to mm-hmm. because it was gone during yeah. the event. And so connecting those things takes it's it really out of that important. frontal lobe rumination and that's when you were saying, then you can put it away as a memory. Mm-hmm. Um, so it does need, like all those connections need to be remade. Yeah. It was really fascinating. That's a really good way of describing it. I think that there's a lot of bad connections <laughs> going on in my head. Yeah, I think <laughs> I think it's common in all of our heads. You know, the, the thing that I've been so stunned by is how common this is and how little it's talked about. And it's becoming more and more talked about, I will admit. it's um, It's definitely on the rise, which is good to see. Uh, but we've got people who you can point to that retiree that you know who went through their whole career, didn't do it the right way, and they left angry, bitter, 
pissed, you know, three, four divorces. Right. Just living out of a bottle. Yeah. And drinking heavily. And that's what not doing something about it looks like. That's how it manifests. And I think that's what we can point to because with every one of those people that I can remember who's retired in a, maybe a bad mental spot, um, or with maybe a bad taste in their mouth of the department that they left, it's because they left with all that baggage and it was never dealt with or handled Mm -hmm. throughout their 25, 30 year career. I have a question for you. When you had that call Mm -hmm. and they sent you home. Yes. Was that a good idea? Sometimes I think like, what if, what if you go home to nothing and Mm -hmm. you're alone or you go home to maybe a slightly abusive situation right? or, um, I don't know. What is the right answer there is do you go home or do you go somewhere? Yeah. So with the peer support training we got going home is, can be a really good thing, but it can also be a really bad thing. And so you have to have a plan when you go home. And so my battalion chiefs, uh, intentions that night were nothing but pure and good and wanting to take care of his people. Right. But he didn't have the training to think, well, what if Steve's going home to a really bad spot? And I will say this, he knows me personally, so it's not like he was concerned about something I could be going home to. But we have some people who I will, you know, I'll, I'll say they, they don't have family to go home to. Mm-hmm. Uh, they maybe live alone. Um, they're in and out of relationships a lot. And those are the people that I would be the most worried about. Not because, well, just because they have less of a cushion to come home to, so to speak, you know, um, having, a family is a good thing. Having people around you is a good thing. And so if you send someone home in a situation where it might be less than ideal, there has to be a follow-up plan and it's got to be right away. It can't be, um, Hey, I'll talk to you next shift. You know, it's, Hey, let me know when you get home. And then if it's the middle of the night, like it was for this situation, um, I'm going to follow, I'll follow up with you first thing in the morning. Will you text me when you get up? And, um, you know, I just want to keep an eye on you and let them know that you're thinking about that. And the other thing that's really, really strange to to learn, which was a shocker for me, was you have to use the word suicide. You have to talk about it. And you have to say things like, hey, really bad call, sending you home. You know, I know that's the right decision, but these are the things that we're worried about, right? Last thing we want is a suicide on our hands. Um, so we're going to be doing the follow-up stuff. I'm not worried about that with you necessarily, but we're going to be doing things just by the book on this one and and let them know that that's on the table. Because not talking many, about have it. Have you is, known someone? Have you been personally affected by suicide? Yes. And when you found out, I have too. And I, mm-hmm. my immediate reaction was, I didn't see that coming. Right. So yeah. even though they might not be quote worried about you, right. I agree that you should say those words and, mm-hmm. and talk about them because mm-hmm. it's really we're so good at pretending we're fine. Yes. Yes. So as the old guy. Yeah. If you were to ask me that, if you were my officer, mm-hmm. which you'd be a very good officer. Oh, thanks, man. You buy me coffee that. every shift. That'd be yeah, great. I'd buy you coffee every shift. <laughs> if you <laughs> asked me that, I would feel like, wow, does he perceive me as weak? Right. And so I, I just, I don't know how, I mean, it needs to be presented in such a way. Individual basis for individual sure. Individual basis, right? Right. Or on a um, format basis. Mm-hmm. So it's not individual. Mm-hmm. So it's like. Dan, here are the, here are the things we're worried about when things like this happen and we send people uh, home. Yeah. We're worried right. about this list of things. Yes. So we're checking in with you that tomorrow. Would work. Mm-hmm. That way it's uniform and not. Right. Right. We're worried about you. Right. And the individual part comes with 
who am I talking to? Yeah. Am I talking to a guy who just got off probation and he's, or she is, you know, maybe this is her first really bad call. Um, and I will say that the newer generation of medics have this instilled in them. They're talking about this a lot and they're raising their hands and their voices when they're seeing warning signs in their coworkers, which is pretty cool. That is cool. So am I talking to that person or am I talking to the 25 or 30 year vet who is finally showing some signs that he might be, he or she might be affected by this stuff. As the officer, I would be definitely tailoring my message because my crew right now is that makeup. I have the guy who's retiring later this year and I have the new the, guy, the probie who's right. a few months left on probation. So wow, what a mix it is. It's a, <laughs> it's a dance every single day. Right. <laughs> so question for you. So, and I, I should know this, but I don't. What's the difference between a debriefing and a defusing? Mm. Yeah, good question. So uh, I believe when you say debriefing, you're talking about a CISD, a critical Correct. incident stress right. debrief. So that is a formal breakdown of what happened with your uh, the people that were affected. And that's immediately following the incident? It's when the people or group of people feel like it's a good time to go over it. It might be a while after. A defusing is typically, you know, that thing that you did right after. right after the call. Okay. Um, a CISD brings in more people, maybe a little bit longer bit of time, and then it's a more formal process of going around the room and talking about it. I like to think of defusings as a much less formal CISD without the expectation that um, defusing is, is really right after the event, and it's going to help literally defuse some potential intense feelings that could be going on, whether it's sadness or anger. Because a lot of times, you know, we get on scene when we're, we're with other agencies and we see them do something that really bothers us that we would have never done or they said something that, you know, we would have never said. Those things can create bitterness, which as we know, bitterness can make some pretty deep roots and get pretty nasty pretty quick. So diffusings are great for the initial post check-in uh, with crews and, it helps for me, a diffusing sets the tone for what I can expect from my chief officer and how he's going to handle, he or she's going to handle the follow-up with this call afterwards. Case in point, um, earlier this year, we had a hanging. Um, they are nasty, traumatic, you know, in-your-face calls. And um, it was a teenager. And the call really bothered a couple of the people that I responded on that call with. For me, yeah, it was tragic, but it didn't get to me nearly on the level at all right. that this other one did that I was just explaining. And, But this other call with this teenager really affected some of the older people on my crew because they have kids that are that age, right? And that's one of those things where we, you know, we start to relate to the people on scene. Yeah. And we form those, whether they're real or perceived connections, that those can be you know, something that really attaches our, our brains to the call and everything about it. What I appreciated was they had the wherewithal to say, I'm struggling. I'm really not doing good. All I could see was my kid hanging there, my kid getting compressions, my kid getting intubated. Um, and we started a text stream. So the, the chief officer uh, got us all together in the ambulance bay after that call. We had our engine crew and our ambulance crew up there. And said, hey, thought you guys did an awesome job. Because at that point, we had actually gotten the kid back. 
we dropped him off with the pulse and the pressure. Everything was looking good. He doesn't make it, but 36 hours in the ICU and, and, and succumbs to the injury. But the next three, I would say probably three or four shifts, so a couple, three weeks, the text stream was, hey, what's going on? How are you guys doing? Checking in. How's everyone feeling? And I'll be honest. Initially, the uh, reports were pretty, oh, fine. I'm doing okay. Thanks for checking. I'm good. And I don't want to toot my own horn here, but I got really personal with one of my responses. And I love my wife to death. She's put up with so much crap. Uh, <laughs> so Trader Joe's, right? Everybody loves Trader Joe's, right? Who doesn't yeah. love that place? They sell these frozen dark chocolate banana slices, which are like better than ice cream. They're just amazing. I had no idea. Yeah. Now, I, just changed my life. Yes. <laughs> you need to go find some if you can <laughs> and buy them all. But they're in this, these like tiny little boxes. Uh, and I'm eating some of these. I get some out. I'm talking to Jenna, uh, my wife, a couple couple days after this call. And uh, I'm kind of struggling putting them back together because the box is kind of frustrating. You'll, you'll know once you buy 15 <laughs> of them. And uh, I'm putting these things back in the box. And she makes a comment at me because she and I had both been enjoying these things uh, for the last few minutes. And then we'd stopped for a while. So I was going to put them away. But I'm so frustrated and irritated for no reason that I can't put this box back together correctly. And she makes the offhand comment, oh, thanks, I guess I was done eating those too. And it was like, <laughs> you know what? Screw it. Boom. And I just throw it on the counter, right? And then frozen chocolate bananas go <laughs> flying all up, like on top of her. And she's just like, okay, I think someone's probably a little on edge because of that uh, bad call last shift. And she can now see it, right? And so she gives me a pass, but um, after I, you know, apologize multiple times, the ability to have that to come home to, right? Like that's, that's huge. That's a huge support system. Um, but did you tell him that story? On I the told text him thread? that story <laughs> on the text thread. And so once I shared that, it was kind of like the walls came down a little bit. Right. And they started saying things like, yeah, I'm not going to lie. I almost, you know, I flipped this guy off on the road and, you know, kind of road raged on him a little bit, but, uh, that was one story. The other one was, yeah, I smacked something with a hammer in my garage 15 times for no good reason because it <laughs> felt really good, you know? Like, it 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 just helps to know that, yeah, I'm struggling too. And it it's helps that you're there too. because I know, like, in my personal life, I'm not going to be like, so, guys, I went on this awful call where this baby's skull was off. You know I mean? Like right. I, you can't say that to normal people in your life. So you hold it all in. Mm -hmm. And then when you don't show up to a party and everyone gets pissed at you, you really just want to rage at the world because right. no one's dying here. Mm -hmm. And to have people like us three in the room that get it, right. we need each other mm -hmm. to say, Hey, uh, What's going on? Or to talk about it. Cause I know if I tell you about this awful call I had, I'm not going to ruin you forever. Correct. Whereas we might ruin our family members. You can cause trauma by telling these yeah. stories to people. Yeah. You can. And I try to be yeah. very conscious of that. Right. Um, so it is nice to have the outlet between all of us or the peer support group. Mm -hmm. Um, we just have to actually start talking. Yeah. That's yeah. the hardest part. Mm -hmm. What do you feel helps you open up, Dan? Like, do you feel like, when you've been able to talk about some stuff, 
how did you kind of lower the wall? What was the, the thing that helps you? Uh, I think the only time I've really ever done that is when I teach an airway class at my fire department Mm -hmm. and I call it my redemption class. It's all stories of all the people I've killed basically. Yeah. And so when I'm able to verbalize that, I remember the first time I did it, it was, it was horrible, Mm -hmm. horrible how I was admitting to some stuff and actually verbalizing it for the first time. Yeah. Um, verbalizing the mistakes that you'd made looking back. Yes. Looking back. Uh, but still, I never have formally gone to any type of counselor or talked to my wife. I mean, I do. I have a horrible filter at home. I'll show my kids pictures of the cadaver lab. Hey, yeah. check this out. <laughs> it's like, like, come on, these guys don't need to see this. Oh, <laughs> I know it's ridiculous. But I don't know. I, I I sometimes when I'm feeling, you know, how you feel, oh, poor me. It's like, well, I'm a lost cause. But I'm not. I still got a couple oh. good years left. Maybe, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe one, one or two. Or two. <laughs> I remember, uh, I was, I was at Katrina and I was in a Black Hawk and I was asleep almost and the doors were open and the pilot puts the helicopter into a dive. Oh. Uh, you stupid little kids just driving these, flying these helicopters and he puts it into a dive and we are screaming as I think I'm dying, right? Yeah. And then he goes down and he just brushes the ground and comes back up. I mean, it, t- I thought I was dead. Yeah. And so, Prior to that, I could go on rides at the, at Disneyland. Yeah. After that, my kids make me go on that. No thanks. That Hollywood, what is that thing? The drops, Tower of Terror. Tower of Terror. In tears. Oh boy. In tears. In front of my children, which I mean, in my family, that's a no, no, right? Right. Yeah. My dad taught me, you do not cry in front of anyone. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Because it took me right back to that. Yeah. And then I was able to say, well, this is what happened. This is the reason, guys. You know, and I try to play it off and, so you need to back that up a little bit. Yeah. You are a member of DMAT? Uh, no, this was a, another organization. Okay. Different so, organization. Different organization. So we just went to, to Katrina afterwards and. Right. Cause lots of organizations responded to Katrina. Right. And you were. We were kind of just going house to house. Refalling it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it was. Yeah. It was amazing. Yeah. But you uh, told me later, I don't do water anymore. I'll no. do earthquakes. I don't do floods. No, no floods. Yeah. <laughs> you were done after that. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. That's tough. Yeah. I actually, when I was little, one of my first exposures to trauma, so to speak, was a really bad flight. We had a, uh, taken off uh, from an airport. A um, couple minutes in, it's a bumpy, you know, turbulent getting up to altitude. Uh, come to find out later, there was a tornado that had touched down in the area that we had left not too far after. So we're flying through some of the worst, you know, area around that, uh, cell and the storm. And, uh, we stalled. Oh. We dropped just free fall in a 737. And, you know, we've got the oxygen mask coming down. Everybody's screaming, puking, just in terror. And, uh, pilot corrects it. We get back, you know, up to altitude. He apologizes. Says, uh, yeah, can't remember the last time that happened, but, uh, you know, really, really glad we were <laughs> just like, oh my gosh, man. And You're so, like, do we have to go back up there? Yeah. It's yeah. like, where's the nearest airport? Can we right. just get back on the ground, please? So we ended up having an emergency landing though. Um, not too far after uh, he corrected, but for a while, flights after that were just like, oh, I oh man, if it's anything but crystal clear air, 
on a nice sunny morning. Like I do not want to get up, you know, and go on a flight, but we have to realize that the trauma we see is not normal, right? It's not, we're responding on the worst days of people's lives and we're seeing some of the worst things that there's a good saying about it. Yeah. And one of our friends um, showed it to me and it, I'll probably butcher it, but it's something like you can't be exposed to so much trauma in your life um, without being touched by it. It's mm-hmm. like walking through water and not getting wet. It's completely huh. impossible. Yeah. The uh, guys at the, the trained our peer support team told us that uh, basically everybody needs to go to counseling. You either need to go because you're dealing with PTSI or you're a compulsive liar and you're you know, just <laughs> denying everything that's happened and you're not acknowledging it. Daniel. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. One thing that I've learned um, that goes hand in hand with what we experience as EMS providers is that we're really bad at caring for ourselves. We care for yes. everyone else, but we are always last. Mm-hmm. Like thinking about doing something for myself gives me a little bit of anxiety. Like, mm-hmm. first of all, I don't have time for that. Right. And everybody else needs something for me and mm-hmm. it feels selfish, but the self care it's awesome. Is where it starts. Self-care, sleep. Yes. And then that breeds this um, culture now with your within yourself where you can deal with those feelings or talk about those feelings and break down some of those walls. But it starts with self-care because yeah. if I'm not willing to do self-care, no matter what you say to me, it's not going to get through. Right. One of and the self-care isn't – my shrink told me this. It's not selfish. It's actually the best – gift you can give everyone in your life because if you Mm. do self-care then you can give so much more that's awesome i like that a lot the i'll uh, let you know how it goes (laughs) (laughs) i'm trying really hard um one of the so the the class that we had gone to uh was about a three-hour drive away from uh where me and the other members of our team lived and so we're driving back from the class and we're kind of having this discussion about how we're going to implement this at our department and all the stuff we're going to do and the plans we had. And one of the questions I got was, Hey, so what did you learn during this, you know, week's training that was maybe new to you or that you weren't really aware of or something that really kind of caught you off guard. And the way I described it was, I said, I've never paid attention to the duh slide in my life. And he's, my buddy's like, what? What do you mean by the duh slide? I go, every, think about it, every uh, health class you ever took, any wellness course, um, nutrition, mental health, whatever it is, there's a duh slide. And it's always like one of the first five slides in the presentation. And it's make sure you eat right, you don't drink a whole lot, you work out regularly, you talk to someone, you get enough sleep, blah, 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 blah. And then they move on. And it, they actually, in this class, unpacked that information. And when you have those things, those self-care items in your life that are a foundational piece, your ability to absorb the hit of that PTSI-related event are much better. And you're going to recover a lot quicker. It helps build your resiliency. Absolutely. It, it It's the only thing that can help you become resilient if you're not in a good spot with it already. You, you, it's It's incredible. And so... When I got back from that, I told them, I'm going to go get better at the duh slide because I'd never really made a conscious effort to do all those things. And I knew it was going to be a process and I didn't want to take too much on at once. And the way that I did it was the first thing I did was I went to a nutritionist 
and she was actually hilarious. This lady, she's like, Steve, I've, I've got 15 years of schooling. She had like, like two PhDs and a registered dietitian and all this stuff. And she said, I can summarize. The sad thing is I can summarize my entire education in one photo. <laughs> and I said, Oh wow, that's, that's a lot of school loans for, <laughs> for an image. And she shows me this plate and she said, if you can make all your plates look like this, you'll be good to go. You'll be light years above everyone else. And it was half of the plate was covered with vegetables and some fruit. A quarter of it was covered in lean protein sources. And then a quarter of it was covered in uh, complex carbs. And she said, if you can do that, focus on that. And then little to no sugar and eliminate the processed foods as much as you can. Like you're, you're golden. I was like, oh, okay, yeah, but I can, I can do that. And you have chocolate-covered bananas? <laughs> I mean, it's a fruit. If it's dark chocolate it's as well. I mean, dark if it's dark chocolate, chocolate I'm going to give myself a pass. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, so then the second thing I started looking at was alcohol, right? Because that one's tough. Because it's so easy to pour yourself a drink and then pour yourself another one because it's refreshing and it's hot outside. And before you know it, you're three or four in. But uh, she reminded me that depending on your, your source – Roughly 12 to 15 drinks is the cutoff line per week for alcoholism. And you can per hit week. Yeah. You can hit that pretty quick. Right. And I would reckon to guess that we have way more functioning alcoholics around oh, us yeah. in our oh, profession sure. than we would want to admit. So I gave myself a two drink limit on my days off because obviously you can't drink when you're on a 24 right. hour shift. And so that kept me around the six to eight a week, uh, mark, but that was my, decision there. Right. And the crazy thing about that was when I switched that over and drank less, my sleep improved drastically. Like I wasn't getting up at one thirty or two o'clock in the morning anymore for an hour or two every time. And then I wasn't waking up a few hours later, just completely exhausted because I was up in the middle of the night. Right. Um, so that was awesome. Uh, I joined a gym that I had to join a gym that didn't require me to bring the workout with me. I had to join one of the ones that you show up and you're done. Like they have it all laid out. Set. Yeah. Right. <laughs> That's been helpful. And you look great. Oh, amazing. Thanks, man. Appreciate that. Uh, continue to talk about stuff. That was one of the things I felt I was kind of pretty good at was talking to people, um, encouraging conversations and then seeing, uh, a counselor. So I continued that. And then the thing that was the toughest of the whole dust slide stuff was weight management because I could get my nutrition better it wasn't great, but I could improve it. I could decrease the drinking, but my weight didn't really change. And so I got to my highest weight the end of last year, and it was 234. And over the next six months up until right about now, um, I've been doing intermittent fasting. And like for me, it, it had to be a life, like a daily lifestyle change. I couldn't do the, you know, counting calories or you know, putting everything into my app and seeing what my right. macros were and right. all this stuff. Like I couldn't do that. Um, I read a book by Dr. Fung, F-U-N-G, uh, called The Guide to Fasting. And he's written a bunch of other stuff, uh, the obesity code, the diabetes code, um, some really intriguing books about the topic. And for me, choosing not just what I eat, but when I eat was like the key. And so 35 pounds down, feeling a lot better. Wow. Um, and it's just a lifestyle change. You know, I can't focus on, Oh, well, if I remove that, I'll be okay. Right. Mm -hmm. Cause 
It's really tough to remove stuff, man. Shoot. <laughs> like sugar, you know? Oh, love Do it you as much as I can, have but you I love it. felt the difference um, in your like performance at work or yeah. mental health? Yeah. Um, the brain fog is gone. Sleep has improved. Um, I would say I'm, I'm sharper with my thinking. Um, I feel like I'm able to get that next thought out much more clearly at times. And I have a lot less of the, oh, shoot, I lost my train of thought. Let me start back over. You know, I'm doing that a lot less. So it's been a journey, but wow. yeah, focus on the dust slide. That's the, yeah. that's the take home point because that'll help you with that, provide that cushion that we all need. I recently had a debriefing and part of the debriefing was, um, don't forget to drink a lot of water, get a lot of sleep and don't eat carbs. Yeah. And I was like, don't eat carbs. What is this? Yeah. What kind of group is this? What kind of anti-Italian place <laughs> but are we? It was in? interesting that 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 was one of the things that they said is don't if you need to go home and eat your feelings, then just right. make sure you know why you're doing it. And that up and down sugar crash mm-hmm. is really bad for your mental health. Yeah, so the that was interesting addition to the debriefing. Yeah, Doctor Fung talks about brain fog, and it comes from when we eat our. Um, our blood insulin levels spike, right? And if we eat regularly throughout the day, they stay spiked. And so insulin is the one thing that they can relate back to and say, when you when your levels spike, your body goes into fat storage mode and you want to get away from that. And so when you eat is just as important as what you eat. And so he says, there's all this research that points to um, fasting or choosing when to eat is really, really key to getting those insulin levels to come back down so your body can start burning fat instead of storing it. But the idea of I need to eat three big meals and snack in between really just means you're keeping your body's insulin levels way too high, way too often. And that's what is causing our bodies to store fat. And so finally I felt like I was like, Oh man, that makes so much sense. Cause I thought I was doing a pretty good job of, you know, working out, checking what I was eating but the second that I switched up my schedule on it and didn't even really change anything, that's when I really started to notice the the uh, the results. So it's cool stuff. Give that a shot. Yeah. Well, Dan, you're like a marathon runner, man. I don't think you need to. <laughs> you don't need it. Any any it's the Yeah, <laughs> maybe do, for, maybe do yeah. it for that effect. Absolutely. Cool. Well, I think that's all we got for today's episode. Um, I do want to say that I uh, appreciate both of you guys sharing where you're at and um, I'm excited because it sounds like we've got some more yeah, people coming to talk to you about this uh, issue. Dig a little bit deeper into this. Yeah. Appreciate your telling us your story. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Being Absolutely. vulnerable. Absolutely. Hard. I'm not there yet. Yeah. Everybody's journey, on a different journey. You know what I mean? Next time. Yeah. We'll break you. <laughs> <laughs> this is actually therapy. We, we have, that's <laughs> why we created this podcast was for your therapy. Dan, there's a uh, therapist down the, down the hallway. <laughs> I'd like to chat with you after this. <laughs> All right, guys, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for your time, and uh, we'll see you on the next one.